When I was in college, I had the incredible privilege of studying abroad, and I got to spend some time in Italy where I was able to see this building. It's called the Florence Baptistry, or the Baptistry of St. John. This building is one of the oldest buildings in the city. It's constructed almost a thousand years ago. And this image of Jesus is just in one section of this massive display covering the entire ceiling. And that ceiling where this image is, is right above where new Christians are baptized. Okay, so this church is so beautiful that Michelangelo, who knows a few things about Christian art, called the entrance to the church the gates of paradise. So imagine, just for a second, what it was like to be baptized there. You look up after your baptism, and you see that image of Jesus looking down at you. To be clear, all baptisms give the same gifts, but there is no doubt in my mind that that image would stick with you. If it were me, after my baptism, I can only imagine being absolutely amazed. I want you to hold on to that thought, and I want you to think about this question. How did you react the first time you heard about or were told about Jesus. It may be hard to remember, but if you could get back into a time machine and somehow travel back to the first time you heard his name and you thought about what you felt, how would you describe that reaction? Did you feel convicted by Jesus? Maybe that you really had sinned and and you needed forgiveness? Were you thankful for what he had done for us on the cross? Were you maybe even overwhelmed with love for him at the way that he treated others. Those are some of the positive reactions, but maybe your reaction may have been negative. If you grew up in a hellfire and brimstone church, you could have been pretty scared by Jesus. You could have been offended by his teachings. Whatever your reaction was at the time, we actually have records of ancient reactions to Jesus, and they range from total dedication to total rejection. By modern standards, my bet is that both reactions seem insane to us. Think about the positive ones. These these grown adults leave their jobs and their families and their security. They leave everything in order to follow Jesus around for an indefinite period of time. On the other hand, the violent reaction against him also seems insane. The Romans not only execute Jesus, they torture him. The worst way that the Roman Empire had invented to kill people was used on him. In my studies, the most tame reaction I have found in any of the four Gospels is this one from the Gospel of John. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. And others replied, no, he deceives the people. That is the most tame reaction I could find in all four Gospels. And guess what they do? They, it, it's so controversial that what do they do? They whisper it. They're so afraid of how controversial it is, they won't stand up and publicly commit to what they believe. They just say, he is a good man. That's the most they're willing to say. 
Now, my point about this is simple. There is one modern reaction in our age, in our time, to Jesus that I don't see in the four Gospels. And that reaction is boredom. I cannot find people in any of the four Gospels who shrug their shoulders and just move on after encountering Jesus. No one hears his words and says, huh, he's got some good ideas, but I don't really mind either way. I never see apathy about Christ. So my question for us is this. Do the extreme reactions from the past actually make more sense than the tame reactions in the present? What if it actually makes more sense to react with either love or hatred and nothing in between? That's why this series is called Amazed by Jesus. My hope is, my goal is, that at the end of each sermon, you would be amazed by Jesus. And if you already are amazed by him, that's fantastic. I want you to be more amazed by him. And if you've never even felt intrigued by him, I want you to have that experience for the first time. And the reason why we're studying the Gospel of Mark is because we see this reaction over and over and over again. The crowds were amazed. Now, today we're just going to look at the first chapter of Mark. There are eight sections in this first chapter, and y'all, we are not going to be able to cover them, especially not verse by verse. But I want to go through each section just to point out what is this section saying or claiming about Jesus, because I think all of them are amazing. So buckle up. We're going to start in part one, uh, section one, where John prepares for Jesus. And y'all, the gospel of Mark does not start small. He says, this is the beginning of the good news about the Messiah, the son of God. He is already claiming Jesus is the long awaited king of Israel, that for centuries, the people have desired for him to come. Mark says that there's a prophet named Isaiah who lived six centuries before Jesus was ever born, and he says Jesus fulfills that prophecy. And that prophecy specifically says that a herald would come to prepare the way for the Lord, and that herald is a man named John. Now, we know from the Gospel of Luke that John was the cousin of Jesus. Picture just, you can pick any one of your cousins Imagine saying, this is my cousin, and he is the Lord. I don't know about y'all's cousins. I like my cousins. I would never say that about any of my cousins, okay? But John has a firm conviction that Jesus, his relative, is the Lord. He's the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. And not only that, he says, I'm not even worthy to do slaves work. I'm not even glorious enough to help him take off his shoes at the end of the day. Not only that, John says that my cousin Jesus is going to bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, for Americans, that doesn't mean very much. But for Jews, the Holy Spirit is what came upon the mighty judges of Israel. And John is saying Jesus will immerse you, actually anyone, into that powerful Holy Spirit. And y'all, that is section one. In section two, when Jesus is baptized, y'all, Mark says that the veil between heaven and earth is torn open. And that, that translation is accurate. It is split in two. And out of that torn veil between heaven and earth, 
The Holy Spirit manifests himself as a dove. A voice speaks from out of heaven directly to Jesus and says, you, that's the second person, you are my son whom I love, and I am well pleased with you. Now, I don't know what happened at your baptism. I think mine was special, but it is not that special. What happens in Jesus' baptism is truly incredible. The, the divide, the gulf between where angels are and where we are is, is rendered in two. And God says, he's my son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. And if that wasn't enough to impress you, Jesus is still wet from his baptism when he directly goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by Satan. And this is not an accident. It's not like he's out there already and then, oh, big surprise, Satan is out here too. He goes there on purpose led by the Holy Spirit. Y'all, unfortunately, I think a bunch of ridiculous movies just kind of downplay how frightening the devil actually is. We have all these silly images of horns and pitchforks but y'all let's just be frank if you had an encounter with satan like a one-on-one just you all by yourself and the devil let's just put this delicately you would be outmatched you would be terrified and the devil himself comes out for a one-on-one battle with jesus and jesus not only survives He wins. He doesn't succumb to a single lie or temptation. And after he's done, angels attend to him. He's like a boxer in the ring, and the angels are wiping the sweat off of his brow after he beats Satan in a duel. Y'all, if that is true, if that's accurate, if that's what happened, we should be amazed because Jesus doesn't even stop there. He goes directly from that temptation And he goes into the world with a message. And he says, the time has come. Now, imagine a brand new minister, just for a second. Suppose this for a second. A brand new minister right out of seminary gets hired, and he he gets hired at a new church. And on his first Sunday, he says four words. He says, the time has come. Okay? Some of y'all snickered. Some of y'all laughed. And rightly so, because that would be a joke. That would be ridiculous because it would be this young, naive kid who can't be taken seriously, who thinks he's a big deal. But with Jesus, he's not actually kidding around. He's saying, when I show up, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he makes it very personal. It's not just this abstract concept. He says, you need to change in light of that fact. I don't know if you heard him say this, but he says, repent. That means to traje- like change the trajectory of your life. Like a 180 degrees, you were going one way towards sin, and now you need to turn and go to God. And Jesus says, finally, you need to believe what I'm saying. I have a message, and you need to agree with it. Y'all, if this is not true, if Jesus is making this stuff up, he is an egomaniac. If this is not accurate... If the time has not come, this man is a narcissist. But if it's true, the whole world, like the entire world needs to listen because the time has come. 
If none of those sections impress you or amaze you, y'all, this next section, it just hits me every time. He meets four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he says three words. What are those three words? Come follow me, okay? Let's say you're a student at UT. UT. You're 19 years old, and a stranger, like a person you've never met, walks up to you and says, I need you to drop out of college, and I need you to quit your job, and I need you to break your lease on your apartment, and you need to follow me wherever I go. What would you say? You're crazy. How can I file a restraining order on you? Because that is crazy. But how do, how do they respond? At once, they leave their nets. This is their livelihood. Think about it from Zebedee's perspective for a second. What if a man you never met walked up to your kids and said that they needed to leave their jobs and follow him? You would assume it's a cult, right? Nod your heads because you would think it's a cult. <laughs> this is how potentially insane it is for Jesus to demand four grown men to leave everything behind and follow him. Now, section five is going to be hard to believe if you don't take the spiritual world seriously, and ultimately that's, that's up to you. But Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. And this story, y'all, takes a terrifying turn. Because in the middle of his sermon, a man who is possessed cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, just so you know, Jesus is not in the city where he was raised. So there's no reason for this man to recognize him, which means a demon identifies Jesus in the crowd and calls him out. That's what happens. And Jesus gives the demon a command. Be quiet. Get out. And whether the demon even liked it or not, and it seems like he's pretty reluctant to do so, the demon leaves the man. He obeys the command of Christ. Now, just I'm asking you, suspend for a second any doubts you have about angels or demons, and let's just say your standard horror movie with demon-possessed people in it is even close to the reality. Let's just suppose that for a second. Imagine your reaction if a demon-possessed man walked through those doors, like this morning at church, and you saw this man raving mad, frothing at the mouth, and he calls out Jesus, and Jesus removes, exercises that demon. How would you respond? I mean, y'all, I believe in demons. I believe Jesus frees people from demons. But guess what? I would be shaken to my core if I saw that happen. And Jesus does it. Just by his word. He says, get out. Now, section 6 we see that Jesus' power is not just over the spiritual realm, but also the physical realm. This may be the least awesome story in chapter 1, but I love it just as much because Jesus finds out that one of his followers, Simon, has a mother-in-law, and his mother-in-law has a fever. And it's just amazing to me that Jesus goes to her and he heals her fever because small issues are not below Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, wait, you don't have, I mean, you're not demon-possessed. I mean, 
I've got more important matters to attend to. Even the sniffles for Jesus are worthy of healing, and he makes it go away. Now, I think this next section, it's so subtle, but it's so important. After all of these incredible miracles where these crowds are starting to gather around Jesus and chase him wherever he goes, he goes off by himself in the middle of the night to do what? He prays. The Son of God prioritizes speaking to his Father over a full night's rest. And what I love about this story is that eventually his disciples find him and they say, Jesus, 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 everybody is looking for you. Now, if Jesus was a narcissist, if all he cared about was the attention of the crowds, what what would he do? He would respond to that, right? He would say, oh, I've got to go to those crowds because they need me. They want me. But what does he say? We've got to go somewhere else. This is just so amazing to me. In addition to being able to exercise demons, this man is humble enough to say, I don't need the crowds. I don't care about shallow fame, instant notoriety. I've got bigger goals. I'm going to go preach. So let's go somewhere else. Y'all, this is not what narcissists do. They are drawn to the crowds because they need the crowds. But Jesus is humble. They need him. They're attracted to him, but he does not need them. This last section is so important because of the way Jesus decides to heal this man. A leper comes to Jesus begging for healing. Now, this story is hard to understand if you didn't grow up, if you're not a Jew and you don't understand the consequences of this sickness on his skin, because if you had particular skin diseases, you were not allowed to worship in the temple, and there could be nothing so great for a Jew in the first century as worshiping in the temple. But even worse, this isn't a temporary issue with his skin. It's a chronic, lifelong condition, which means, practically speaking, he has never, right, since he got this disease, he has never been able to worship in the temple, and he will never be able to worship in the temple. And Jesus could have healed him with a word. He could have just said, be healed, and the leprosy is gone. But what does he do? He touches a leper's skin. Okay, that would not only be insane, like like from a doctor's perspective, like, okay, Jesus, now you're going to get it too. It would be insane for a Jew, because what would that mean? Jesus is now going to be unclean. In addition to being sick, he's not going to be able to worship in the temple. But guess what actually happens? The man's skin heals. And Jesus says, I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to enjoy what you've never been able to enjoy. Jesus not just heals. He heals in a particular way. He heals by touching and cleansing this man. Now, I know through those eight sections, we've gone by really, really fast. I mean, I've just bombarded you with these stories about Jesus, but I think it's so important. This is one chapter of one gospel of of all these stories that are so amazing if they're true, if they're accurate. But if they're false, the consequences are huge, which is why I just don't take seriously the claim that Jesus was just a good man. It's one or the other. 
he was a narcissist, a con man, a liar, or he was perfection itself. I just don't see a middle ground. Recently, I read Christopher Hitchens' memoir. Um, It's called Hitch 22. Christopher Hitchens was a British journalist who wrote a book called God is Not Great. Uh, The title is all you need to know about it. Uh, But in, in that book, Hitchens writes, the Bible contains warrant or permission for trafficking in human beings, ethnic cleansing, slavery, bride price, indiscriminate massacre, but we are not bound by any of the Bible because the Bible was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. You don't have to guess how he really feels. It's clear to me in the course of his life and his memoir as well as his many books, he didn't just think Christianity was false. He thought it was evil. He thought it was wicked. He thought it was insane. And at one level, this is going to sound strange, but I think Hitchens' reaction makes sense to me. I don't find a single intellectual argument of his remotely convincing in the slightest, but I respect his emotional response way more than apathy or boredom because he gets what it's claiming and he hates it. But here's my dilemma. I'm a modern Christian and I believe that these stories are true. Everything in uh, Mark chapter 1, I believe it actually happened. But my problem is that I'm so often in the mushy middle when it comes to my reaction to Jesus. I like Jesus. I even love him. But I'm not extreme. It's still so hard for me to fathom what the disciples did when he called them. They left everything they were doing behind. They left their father. They left their work. They left their families And that is our challenge as the church today. The goal is not to become more emotional in our response to Jesus per se. The goal is to become more extreme in our commitment to him. And I think extreme is so often used as a bad word, but it's not a bad word if it's extreme in our love for Christ because Christ's call is extreme. Think about those three words. Come follow me. He gives no timeline. No definition, no details, no limits. It is an open-ended call to follow him, and it is unending. He expects all of us because he expects us. And that means if Christ's call is extreme, our response to him needs to become more so. Sometimes our reaction is just so tame. And my prayer is that because Jesus himself is amazing, that the church's dedication to him would become amazing too. Let's pray. God, we, we ask you for a deeper commitment to your son, Jesus. We pray that we would take these stories seriously. God, sometimes we've, we read them and we know they're from you, but we have heard them before and it's hard to understand how to, how to be re-amazed again. God, we pray for 
a new kind of invigoration of maybe our first reaction to you. God, we pray that we would just be bowled over by these stories again, that we would be wowed again. And if we've never heard these stories, we pray that we would see exactly what they're claiming about Jesus, that he is the Lord, that he is the Messiah, he's the Son of God. He can tell demons what to do. He can make fevers go away. He can cleanse lepers He can truly say when he's shown up, the kingdom has come, the time has come, and that we need to believe it. He really is the one who defeats our enemy, Satan. God, we pray that we would have a a new sense of all of these truths, a, a fresh perspective on each one. We never want to be bored by these stories. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that just like the crowds, we would be amazed again.